All right. Good morning, everyone. Hymn 378. 378, stanza 2. Dearest child whom I adore, whose grace surpasses measure, my brother whom I cherish more than earth with all its pleasure. Haste from thy manger to depart. O come and dwell within my heart. With joy will I receive thee. A cradle there will give thee. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we implore you to hear our prayers and to lighten the darkness of our hearts by your gracious visitation. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay. Verse of the week is John 15, 26. Let's speak that together. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from my Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Good. When the Helper, who is the Helper? Not Christ. This is Christ speaking. This is Christ. Not John the Baptist. Not Moses. The Spirit, yeah. It's right here. When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you. This is a big... John's Gospel is full of these parenthetical statements. When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from my Father, that is the Spirit of Truth. This is the Helper. But we say the Spirit... Okay. When he comes, and why is he going to come? Because Christ is sending him. The, the Spirit, the Helper, will come, which is also why sometimes you'll see this like this with a capital H, because it's a reference to the Spirit, whom I, that is Christ, shall send to whom? Who is you? Believers. Oh, okay, good. You can't just say us, because that doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. I mean, I know what you mean, but it has to be something concrete. To whom, it, who is you? You is believers. To the church, I shall send to you from whom? The Father. So already, what do you have here? You have Christ, who is Son. You have Father, and you have Spirit. Right, so you have the working of the Trinity, and this is important because the Trinity never... 
the persons of the Trinity never work or function independently. Christ never functions apart from the Spirit or the Father. The Father never functions apart from Christ or the Spirit. The Spirit never functions apart from Christ or the Father. So all three persons of the Trinity always work wherever God is working. There's, a, there's an error, and it is kind of pervasive among some of the denominations that are present in this area. There is an error that says there was a time when God the Father did the work and then he finished his work and he said, well, that's done. I'll pass the baton to you, son, and I get to sit in the lazy boy now. And that the Father sits in the lazy boy and watches when the son goes to work. And then the son says, well, that's it for me. Here you go, spirit. And the son goes and sits in the lazy boy with the father, and then they both sit there and watch the spirit, and that now is the time of the spirit, which isn't true. Any time that God works, it is the entirety of the Trinity. Christ is working now the same as he was even when he was here in the flesh. He's still here in the flesh, just in a different way. So, the Trinity works. The, the spirit is the helper. He is the spirit of truth. So now I get to put on my Pontius Pilate hat, and I get to say, oh, I guess this is, yeah, what is truth? I get to be Jesus, I guess. What is truth? What is truth? And I mean that in this sense. When he says the spirit of truth, what does it mean that it is the spirit of truth? Well, who is truth? That's important because truth is not a thing, it's a person. Who is truth? Yeah, yeah, Jesus is truth. Pardon me? Yeah, Christ is the word. The word is truth. Christ is the person of truth. He's the person of wisdom. So the spirit of truth, that is, it's Christ's spirit. And you see it right here. He will testify of me, fixing the pronoun, or identifying the pronouns again. Me is Christ. He will testify of me. What else will he testify of? This is a trick question. Nothing. He will testify of me. If there is ever a spirit that comes blowing through the church that testifies of anything other than Christ, it isn't the spirit. That's what St. Paul talks about that. He says, test the spirits. So, the Holy Spirit never claims any glory for himself. He never comes going, hey, look at me. I just put tongues of flame on people. I, they're talking, that's me, I did that. It's never about what the working of the Spirit does. It's always about the person to whom the Spirit points, which is always Christ. The Spirit testifies of Christ, always points to Christ. Uh, okay, let us speak this again. But when the Helper comes whom I shall send to you from my Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Good. What is the third article of the Creed? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. What does this mean? I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength 
believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to Him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the Gospel, and me with His gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. Yes. Uh, if you watched the catechumenate yesterday, or if you were in attendance in person, you're not allowed to answer this question. Because you already know the answer. But here's the question. If you have to boil down this first little paragraph of the article, the, the explanation of the third article of the Creed, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. What do you say? If you have to boil it down to its most fundamental concept, you believe that what? Okay, that you need help. Correct. That's, that's the right sense. It's exactly right, but I'm going to change your words just a little bit to make it more fun, okay? What you're saying is, I believe that I cannot believe. That's the only thing that you can believe by yourself, is that you cannot believe. If you think that you can believe, or if you believe that you can believe, you're wrong. There's no help for you. The Lord comes to fill the empty. You can't fill the full. You believe that you cannot believe. And that's important because it means, like you said, Jim, you need someone from the outside to come help you, which in this case is the helper, the Holy Spirit. You believe that you cannot believe, but it is the working of the Spirit who makes you to believe, the working of the Spirit who makes you a disciple, the working of the Spirit who gives you the gifts of God. The work of the, the Spirit is really twofold. It is to create and to sustain faith. That is what the Spirit does. Create and sustain faith. There are many ways that the Spirit does that, but those are the, that's, the, that's the task of the Spirit. Okay? Uh, all right, that's any questions? Okay, to Sunday school, and I have a few more things to say about this, but yes. Okay, yes. It means you can't make a decision for Jesus. It, right, you, that you can't believe in him, you can't go to him, you can't offer him, you can't do anything apart from the work of the Spirit to create faith in you. You can't decide that you're going to believe. You can't, you can't take up your own mat and walk until he tells you, take up your mat and walk. Uh, this, is, this is an example that I use a lot. If you're cold and you're dead on the slab, you don't get to sit up and say, would you please come over here and put those paddles on my chest and make me alive? I've decided I want to be alive now. You can't do it. You need somebody else. You won't be alive till somebody comes to you. So you don't get to come to Jesus, Jesus comes to you. And we joke, we joke about having a come to Jesus moment, uh, and that's all fine to say something like that and to use the expression, but the reality is you don't actually get to come to Jesus, and quite personally, um, I care a lot less about whether you've decided for Jesus, whether you've invited Jesus, whether you've come to Jesus, and a lot more about Jesus inviting you, Jesus coming to you, Jesus doing things for you, Jesus inviting you. See, this because 
because it's really all about the working of Christ. And the point of this is to say that. It is not your work, it's the Lord's work. Whose, whose work is faith? That's the question. Whose work is faith? Is it your work or is it God's work? That's the, that's the big question that is being answered here. And the way that the church, this is not even just Luther, this is the Christian church. The way the Christian church answers that question is to say, it is the Lord who, who is in charge of working faith. He's, faith. Faith is his job. It's, I receive things from the Lord. I have faith, and it's great to say that you have faith, and I rejoice uh, with the Lord in the faith that you have. But you also confess that your faith did not originate in yourself, that it was something given to you. And uh, it was given to you by the means that the Lord has established, by word, by sacrament, by preaching of the gospel. The great example of that is, well, actually there's two. Right? Because the first one initially that pops to mind is the Ethiopian eunuch. Does the Ethiopian eunuch have faith? This isn't a trick question. <laughs> does he have faith? He does have faith, but his faith stems from the, the, the prophets. He's reading Isaiah, but this is the really big important part about that. He's reading Isaiah and he doesn't understand it. So the, the word of God creates faith, but even then when you're just looking at it, it, it takes the preaching of the word, which is a very specific use of the word, that it is preached. How can they, how can they uh, hear if there is none to preach? Uh, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So then uh, Philip preaches to him, it expounds the scripture to him, and his response to that is, there's a mud puddle, what's stopping me from being baptized right here? And Philip says, nothing, which is what I would say if someone came to church and said, oh my goodness, there's something really great offered here, I believe, help my unbelief, what's stopping me from jumping into that font and being baptized? And I say, nothing, do it right now, I'll baptize you. Uh, so. That's the first example. The second example is maybe even the better example, infant faith. Do you believe that an infant, even in the womb, has faith in Christ? Yes, you do, because the church does. <laughs> so you do believe that. And how is that faith created in that infant? Does the infant, is the infant conceived in the womb and then at, oh, I don't know, 12 or 13 weeks, say, well, you know what, I've been around for you know, 12, 13 weeks, that's a long time for someone like me. I think I'm going to choose to believe in Jesus now. And then when I pop out of the womb, I'm going to tell mom and dad, hey, listen, good on me, I believe in Jesus. No. How does that infant have faith? Yeah, the Spirit and the Word, the working of the Lord. So it's the Lord that creates faith even in a child like that, a child so small, an infant in the womb. And uh, when, the, when it says that the Spirit will always testify of Christ, it doesn't mean that he's only going to talk. It says, hey, there once was a man named Jesus and he died for your sins. That's not what it means. He will proclaim that. The office of the ministry is the work of the Spirit so that when I preach a sermon, it is actually the work of the Spirit who is delivering to you wor the Word. 
the truth of the gospel. Uh, so the Spirit still works by the Word, yes, but the Spirit also points to Christ wherever Christ is, testifying of Christ, pointing to Him wherever He is, and revealing Him, which means that Christ is revealed in the water of baptism so that the eunuch who has faith but hasn't been baptized can still say, I want baptism, because now I, I have that, that spark of faith but, I, but the, spark of faith will, that's, the spark of faith that is created by the working of the Spirit will always direct me to the thing that is where Christ is, and that's where Christ is in that water of baptism. So take me there because I need it. Faith knows what it needs by the working of the Spirit. That infant has the faith but knows that it needs to be directed to the places where Christ is because the Spirit is testifying of Christ. So it's never enough just to say that like some of the Pentecostal denominations would say, oh, hallelujah, I have the Spirit. Okay, great, but what does it mean? And if the Spirit is independent of Christ, then the Spirit is worthless. It doesn't matter if you have the Spirit or don't have the Spirit. If the Spirit is completely devoid of Christ, and if the Spirit is about something other than directing you to Christ and to where Christ is, if that's a spirit you have, one that's independent of Christ, that, is, that functions independently and for a purpose other than directing you towards word and sacrament, then it's a spirit that is not of God. Because the Holy Spirit testifies of me. Always, always, always. Points, drives, directs you to the places where Christ is. Now, I'm... Okay, you don't get how a baby in the womb has faith. There's a short answer. You do. You raise them in the faith, but they have faith by the proclamation of the word. That does the child know your voice? When you give birth, when a mother gives birth to her child, does the child recognize the voice of its parents? Yes. Yes, it does. And Sirsha was my first, uh, my first encounter with that because she'd, she'd mess around during the service, even as a newborn, until the sermon. And when I would start to preach, she would stop because she knows the voice. When Carolyn would talk to her, she would stop and listen because she knows that voice. Already, the child who is newly born knows their parents. So if the child is capable of recognizing and knowing the voices of the parents, how much more so is that child capable of hearing the word and having the spirit work on them even in utero? John the Baptist. Right. John the Baptist is the example of that. John the Baptist recognizes and proclaims Christ from the womb. He hears the word, recognizes his Lord, and leaps with joy in the womb because of the faith that he already has in the womb. So baptism is kind of a strange thing in some ways because you say that baptism both is received by and creates faith. So there is the, that's what I mean when I say that spark of faith because that spark of faith is always being driven to the places where it's going to be received and made stronger and nourished. So the child knows Christ the child has faith if it is a child that has been brought in utero into the church or if it is a child that uh, hears de home devotions at home, even in utero. 
The spirit works. The spirit doesn't know boundaries to where if the child is inside the womb, somehow the word doesn't affect that child. So faith is not intellectual assent. If faith is intellectual assent, then certainly we can say a child doesn't have faith because that infant is smarter than we sometimes give them credit for, but they don't have the ability to utilize their intellect, and they won't until they're older. But if faith is something more than head knowledge, if it's fear, love, and trust in God, and if it is something that is given by God through the working of the Spirit in the means that he has established for that purpose, then certainly the infant, even in the womb, can receive the gift of faith by the working of the Spirit. The baptismal liturgy is something that confesses that. Because whom, whom do I address when I ask questions about renouncing the devil, believing in Christ, desiring baptism? Who, who is it that I address? It's the baptismal candidate is who it is. It's the baptismal candidate. So if it's an adult, the adult will answer for themselves. If it's an infant, the parents and the sponsors answer on behalf of the child. Now the reason that the parents and the sponsors answer is not because we don't know what the baby would say and we're just guessing that this is what the baby would say because the baby doesn't have the intellect to make a decision. The reason that the parents and the sponsors speak is because the baby doesn't know how to talk. So when the parents and the sponsors speak, it's not in lieu of the baby, it is to assist the baby in proclaiming the faith that we believe that the baby has, even though the baby can't form the words with his own mouth. So the, there's no question about whether that baby believes, even though the parents and the sponsors are speaking, they are giving voice to the faith that we believe and trust is present in that child. If the baby could speak, these are the things that baby would say, but the baby can't speak, so the baby needs someone else to speak for him. Does that make sense? Is, does that sort of answer your question? Does, I, don't know if, I don't know if I've helped at all. <laughs> The big, thing, the big thing, Marla, is this. Whose work is faith? If, if faith is our work, something that we do, then a baby can't have it because a baby, a baby can't do that work. But if faith is something that the Lord does, something the Lord works, something the Lord enacts, something the Lord gives, then certainly it knows no boundaries, even the boundary of the womb. So, so that the proclamation of the gospel, uh, the preaching of the word, the faith that is confessed and lived by the parents, by the congregation of Christ, works on the child even in the womb. This is, why, this is one reason why abortion is such a heinous thing when you start to understand faith comes by hearing. Because how many aborted children never heard the word, were never placed into the presence of the Lord, were never brought into a church, were never raised for however long they were permitted to live in a house where the parents were faithful, confessed the faith, did devotions. And it's, it's staggering. 
and it makes it, if you didn't already think that it was atrocious, beginning to think about faith coming by hearing, hearing by the word of God, hearing by its or the word of God by its proclamation, even in the womb, you think about abortion through that lens and it becomes all the more heinous. Because not only are you depriving a child of life, but you're depriving, of, depriving that child of any degree of faith that they would receive from the word. Now that doesn't mean that the Lord cannot work faith in them apart from preaching, which is why anytime you do a funeral for a child and there's ever a question, it's, it's something where you commend the child to the grace of God and, and pray for the mercy of the Lord. But if I had a Christian, say I have a Christian parents in this congregation who are attending regularly, who come to church, who are very faithful, who I have no doubts are doing home devotions, confessing the faith at home, and if they have other children, teaching the faith to those other children, and then they have a miscarriage. That child wasn't baptized. What do I have to say about that child? I have everything to say about that child because of the sure and certain confidence I have, not in the child's ability to make its own faith, but in that child's ability to hear and to receive, and in the Lord's ability to work. And I never doubt in the Lord's ability to work. So if I were ever to do a, a funeral for a child like that, someone from the congregation who I had no doubts about, who were regular here, there was a miscarriage and they wanted a funeral for that child, that would be a, that would be a funeral I could do. And that would be a funeral I could preach for because we have the confidence of the, the faith that comes by hearing. So I don't, know if that, I don't know if that helps at all. If, you're still, if you still struggle with the idea or, or the possibility of infant faith, the thing that I would encourage you to go back to is the simplicity of the question, whose work is faith? Because if it's the child's work, they don't have it. But if it's the Lord's work, they sure can. That's what I would say. If a child can hear and recognize the voice of a parent, you better, you better believe that they can hear and know the voice of their Lord. The elderly are another really good example of that, actually. Um, dementia patients. You, you know, Alzheimer's and dementia and other diseases of that nature, these individuals present such a potent and beautiful image of faith not because they can confess it intellectually, but because they revert to a childlike state. And in their childlike state, in that simplicity of mind, even when they don't fully understand what they're saying or what's going on, they confess the faith better than adults who are all the way there with uh, their memory and their thoughts living in, the, in reality. And, and there's a really good example of that, somebody that I, I visit with frequency. Uh, she doesn't know anybody, and the first time I went to see her, the nurses tried to coddle me as they led me back to her area because they said, oh, she's, she's, she's not gonna know who you are. We just, we really want you to be prepared. She, she's not gonna know what's going on. And, and I had heard from pastors beforehand that, oh, you won't get anything out of her. Just leave her alone. Don't, don't give her communion, just kind of say hi to her and move on because she, she's not going to get anything and you, you, can't, you can't have a conversation, you can't do anything with her. And I say, fooey to that. 
That's an unfaithful pastor speaking if that's what they say. I can't do anything with them. I don't give a rip what you can do. The only one I care about is the Lord, and I believe that the Lord can do anything because that's what the Lord has told me. With the Lord, with God, all things are possible. And the Lord is the one who creates that faith. The Lord is the one who sustains that faith. And I don't give a rip if they can't tell me exactly what article of the creed I'm confessing. That doesn't mean that they don't have faith and that the Lord is not working because it's the Lord who works faith, not that person. And they coddled me all the way back there. Oh, she's not going to know. I hope you're prepared. You're, he's, he's just a kid. He doesn't know what he's going to encounter there. Oh, he's so cute. Look at him going, well, he thinks he's going to know who he is. And I went in there, and I gave her the sacrament. And guess what? She sang the liturgy with me. And then she looked at me, and she said, thank you, pastor. And then she went back to however she was before. Because it doesn't matter if she recognizes the face. It doesn't matter if she can tell me and proclaim, oh yes, this is what I believe. It doesn't matter if she can repeat the creed with me. I believe and I trust in the work of the Lord to create faith, and she lived a life of faith before that disease ravaged her. Why would I assume that in the grasp of that disease, the Lord forsook her and took away the faith? I wouldn't. I don't care if she knows my face. I don't care if she knows my voice. She knows her Lord. She knows her Lord's voice. That is the same with the child. My newborn child won't recognize my face, but that child will know my voice. That dementia patient might not know my face, but they will know the voice of their Lord. That child will know the voice of, of their Lord. And that's the reality of faith. That is the reality of faith. Now, they can't give public proclamation. Saoirse can't speak the words of the Lord's Prayer. She can't say the creed. She can't even make the sign of the cross. She just does this. <laughs> but that doesn't mean she doesn't have faith. This is the problem. This is the problem. Because we are so accustomed to thinking of faith in terms of that box we've put it in that says, if you can't confess with reason and intellect, then you don't have faith. That's what leads a pastor to say, I can't do anything with this person. Well, I tried to sit and have a conversation. I tried to examine them before communion. and I couldn't. She's not living in reality. Couldn't, couldn't get a thing out of her. That's, that's reason and intellect. But it isn't faith. Faith clings to Christ and is still, the, the Spirit still works for that faith, whether or not that person even comprehends what's going on. I mean, do you think a newborn infant, even after baptism, can come into church and sit there and look around and say, oh, yes, this is, this is now, it's the Kyrie. And we say this because this is what sinners say to the Lord when he walked by in the Gospel of Mark. Yes, mother and father. And absolutely not. They can't rationally explain everything. They can't say the creed. They can't do any of that. But even after baptism, I mean, do you look at a little girl like this and then say, well, she doesn't have faith because she can't. I can't, I can't do anything with her. I can't have a conversation with her and have her confess to me what her faith is. You see, there's this divide between what faith really is, the reality of faith that clings to Christ and is worked on and strengthened and created by the Lord versus the intellectual side of faith that says, well, we'll judge whether you have faith or not based on what you're able to say, what you're able to know, how many answers you can get correct on a test. That's not a measure of faith. Yes? Yes. 
Yes. You know, Jesus doesn't gather all the children to himself and say, now listen up, you. You all need to grow up because faith is for adults. <laughs> he gathers all the adults and he says, now you need to, you need to stop being so adult-like. You need to start being like these children. Children are the example. Children are the paradigm of faith. And here's one reason why. Because kids don't think so much. All of you adults, you spend all your time thinking. And I like to use this example, which you've heard a thousand times already, about the monster under the bed. Well, why isn't there a monster under the bed? Well, because I, I've thought about this for, I've looked and I didn't see a monster. And, and uh, well, you know, I didn't hear any monster. And I've done my studying and I've lived my life for, you know, 60 or 50, 40, 30, however many years. And, uh, and I know there aren't such things as monsters. So let me, let's sit down and have a chat, little Billy, about the monster. Let me explain to you why there's not a monster. You explain that all day, they still think there's a monster under the bed. Why? Because they don't think the way that you do. That's the faith of a child. The faith that can look under the bed and not see a monster, that can open the closet door and not see a monster, can hear their parents say there is no monster and still go to bed thinking there is a monster under that bed. They so firmly believe in the things that they don't see. The things that experience tells them are false. There's no such things as monsters. But that child says, experience tells me that a monster is false, but somehow I still cling to the reality that there is a monster there. And they cling to the reality of that scented water spray. I don't know if you've ever seen that monster spray. They put a, they put a couple drops of some sweet-smelling thing in a bottle of water and they sell it to parents. And then you spray it and, oh, this will keep the monsters away. And the kids go to sleep because they think that it works. Because so, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to make fun of kids or to say, well, aren't they stupid? They think that this water does something. No, aren't they brilliant? Look at them. They think that the scented water repels the monsters because they believe that there are monsters. How wonderful is that? How wondrous. The mind of a child is a wonderful place and they lose it as they grow up. You've lost it. You've lost the sense of wonder that allows you to walk through, walk through the park in the fall and look and say, wow, look at all of this. Every fall is the first fall you've ever experienced. I can't wait just to run through the leaves. When's the last time you said that? When's the last time you said, I can't wait to rake up the pile of leaves so I can run through it and make a mess? See, you've lost it. You aren't the examples of faith. That child is the example of faith. This child is the example of faith. These two boys here, they're the examples of faith. You should be listening to them. They should be teaching you. That's the way that faith works. The, the children are the example. They're the ones that Jesus picks up and says, hey, if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, be like this child. He doesn't pick up the child and say, well, now, Billy, 
If you want to get into heaven, you make sure you be just like your dad and make sure you grow up. Make sure you think about things. You can't get into heaven if you think there's monsters under the bed. <laughs> Is this something I want to hear? <laughs> oh. oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, we had a bat in the house one time and my, ma my mom ran and grabbed my youngest sister, who was still a baby, she grabbed her out of the crib, ran back into her room and locked the door and left all of the rest of us. <laughs> she listens to the podcast too, she's going to hear the story, She'll never, she never lives that down, never. Okay. <laughs> oh my goodness my goodness I, this whole child faith business has got me riled up if you couldn't tell <laughs> thanks Marla you always know just the right buttons to push <laughs> no 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 anytime you have a question I'd much rather talk about your question than whatever it was that I had planned that's what I say for the catechumen too if you don't come with questions then I then you just you make me nervous when you just roll over. So challenge me, ask questions of me. That, that's the way that you learn. You're not going to learn because I stand up in front of you and give you a lecture. You're going to learn because you ask a question and then you have your question answered. I'd rather you go home with an answered question than progression on whatever handout or class we're working on. That's more important. So to the work of the Holy Spirit then, this was the other thing I was going to point to. Hymn 954, which was one of, that was our hymn of the month for October, I think? Well, it was Reformation. This is the creedal hymn. There's two. There's 953, which is the Apostles' Creed, and there's 954, which is the Nicene Creed. It's a hymnic paraphrase of the Nicene Creed. So, anyway, stanza three is the one to look at. This is where you see what I mean when I say that hymn, hymnody is didactic. Hym, that's, that means hymnody teaches. And when you look at this hymn, it's a great example of didactic hymnody, hymnody that really teaches you something, confesses the faith, because it breaks apart the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit according to the articles of the Creed, and it teaches you what their jobs are, what they do. So the third stanza is the Holy Spirit. We all confess the Holy Ghost, who in highest heaven dwelling with God the Father and the Son, which is this. I shall send you from, I, Christ, shall send to you from my Father, the Spirit. It's, it's like how we, can, how we terminate our prayers. Now that's the technical term for the end of a prayer is the termination. Terminating the prayers. The termination is just the very end, which is the, uh, for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That's the termination. But here it is. 
in highest heaven dwelling with God the Father and the Son. He is equal. Uh, all, of the, all of the persons of the Trinity are equal. Not one of them is better or greater or less than the other. The Spirit is here with God the Father and the Son. He comforts us beyond all telling. So have you ever heard uh, the paraclete? The paraclete, that's a name for the Spirit. That's, that's the comforter. The paraclete is the one who gives help and comfort. The helper, the comforter. Uh, think of also uh, what St. Paul writes when he says that the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So the Spirit is working in, in, uh, in your life, in your prayers, even when you don't know what to say, even when you're so frustrated with life or so happy and you just, uh, you don't know what to say. Something goes so terribly wrong, you don't even know what to pray for. The Spirit is already interceding with groanings, sighs, uh, that surpass anything that words could speak, comforting you beyond all telling. Who the church, his own creation, the Holy Spirit creates and sustains the church. That's part of this idea of the Holy Spirit creating and sustaining faith. Where is it that faith is created and sustained? In the church. And I don't mean the church that is the building or the congregation. I mean the Holy Catholic Church. The, where the doctrine, the, the pure doctrine is proclaimed, where the sacraments are administered. Keeps in unity of spirit. He keeps the church in unity of spirit, protecting the doctrine that is taught, main, making sure that everything is held in its proper place in truth and in purity, ordaining men for the office who will seek truth and purity and who will lead their people to truth and purity. Uh, here, forgiveness and salvation daily come through Jesus' merit. The, the Spirit distributes the gifts. All flesh shall rise and we shall be in bliss with God eternally. So, uh, yeah, that's the resurrection. But... Um, that stands in the hymn sort of breaks apart what Christ says when he says, oh, here's the helper testifying of me and what we confess in the third article of the creed about what the Spirit does, creates, enlightens, sanctifies, uh, brings you to faith. He's the one that brings the paddles to you. You don't ask him to bring the paddles over to you. You are made alive by his work, the outside who comes in. Hey, does that? So this is, this is why Sunday school was dismissed, because all of this stuff is all wrapped together, and it's a lot. Okay, questions about any of that before we move ahead? Okay, here's a question that I want to address. Picking up uh, in our talk about the Christmas narrative from last week, we kind of mostly focused on Mary and Elizabeth and what their relationship was. The bottom line is that the word that the Bible uses just says relative. Tradition tells us that she was a cousin of sorts, but she's a, she's a relative and that's fine. Uh, talked a little bit about Mary and Joseph and who they were and their ages and all that, all that kind of stuff. And I gave you some of my opinions on the matter. 
And I had a question about the detail about Joseph and, the, and Mary and the life of Jesus. And I want to just highlight that. Uh, because there really isn't much about Joseph, first of all. You get in the first chapter of Matthew and in the first two chapters of Luke, and then you never hear about Joseph again, again until Christ goes back to Nazareth and they try to throw him off a cliff because they say, well, this guy, isn't he just Joseph's son? Who does he think he is talking to us like this? Uh, but, but even there, that's the last that you hear about Joseph. Um, and all you really hear about Jesus as a child is he was born in Bethlehem, he went to Egypt, he went to Nazareth, and then he's 12 years old in the temple. So what happens in the, in the meantime and why doesn't the Bible tell us? To answer that question, I first have to ask this question. The Bible is literature. That is not a question, that is a fact. The Bible is literature. It is a very special kind of literature that is kind of in, a, in itself more than just literature. Uh, Mary Shelley doesn't have anything on the evangelists, okay? Uh, however, it is still literature. And then with that understanding, here is my question. What genre of literature are the Gospels? Pardon me? Okay, uh, you're on the right track. What, what kind of a genre would you classify a biography as? What subject matter would it be dealing with? Not religion. Okay, you're, you're both right, but I'm looking for a specific word, and I'm, I'm fishing for it. So you don't, you're, you're correct. Biography is right, nonfiction, okay, but what would you, what's another word for biography or non, for nonfiction? What is nonfiction? If something is classified as nonfiction, it means that what is the subject material? It's, okay, it's fact, means it really happened. <laughs> So what would you call it if you're reading something, you're reading a book about something or someone that really was alive and all of the things really happened? What subject would that be? Somebody just said it. History, yes, it's history. Something that has happened, it is history. That's the word, see, you're right, but I'm looking for the word history specifically. So you can say that the Gospels are history. That's what I was hoping you would say. Because it's wrong. <laughs> and I wanted, I wanted to fish for the answer history so I could show you why it's wrong to say that the Gospels are only history. You're really not all wrong in saying that it is history, only half wrong. You'd get, I give you half credit for that. And this is why. Are the things that happened in the gospel historic things? Yes. Did these things really happen? Yes. Do the dates and the names and the places all matter that the evangelists record? 
Yes, they do. They wouldn't have recorded those things if they didn't matter. So in some sense, the Gospels are history because they are recording things that really did happen. However, is it the primary goal of the evangelists, motivated by the Spirit to write their Gospels, to give you four little history books? Is that their primary goal? No. no, it is not. What is their primary goal? It's all in the name gospel and evangelist. If you went to midweek <clears throat> and we talked about what the words evangelist and gospel mean, you would remember and you would know what I'm getting at. Okay literally translated the word that we say is gospel, which is euangelion. It's like eulogy. Eulogy is a Greek word. Eu means good. Logos means word. Eulogy is a collection of good words. You stand up and say some nice things about someone. Euangelion. What is an angelos? An angel? A messenger. What does a messenger give? A message. So euangelion is the, the good message, which is then from the Greek into the Latin. Oh, see, now look. Now look what you do. You get, a, you get a language lesson. The reason I'm doing this is because I think it's really cool, and I think, I hope that you think it's cool too. <laughs> okay, this is million. This is the Greek. What gave it away? Here's the Latin. Here's the thing about Latin. Some people, <coughs> my wife, think that Latin is a beautiful, wonderful language and that it's the king of all languages. It's not. She's wrong. <laughs> Greek, Greek is the language of wisdom and philosophers. Latin's the language of the church, so she's half right. I'll give, her, I'll give you half credit. Now, Latin's a very nice language. It is very pretty. But one thing that Latin does is it takes a lot from other languages because that's the way that the Romans did. They would conquer and then they would absorb and combine what they had with what whoever they conquered had. And you see this in some of their words. So, euangelion in the Greek becomes you see that? The U becomes a V and then and then they, you, you, know, you add stuff on that. So like in the English then, evangelical. Evangelical basically just means it's gospel-centered. Okay? But you get this evangel, which is about the gospel. So this is what the gospels are about. It's all in the name, the gospel. They're giving you, and, and remember this too, the gospel is not just 
the, the news, the word, the message about Jesus, it is, it is Jesus physically. The gospel is the touch of Jesus. So when, it's one reason why you stand for the reading of the gospel, because that's saying this, these words and deeds of Jesus are really where they manifest Jesus here. Where Jesus speaks, he speaks for all time and all places for eternity in the flesh. So when it says, Jesus said, and then the words of Jesus are there, Jesus is really there. I'm not reading them. Jesus is there and he is speaking his words. When the acts of Jesus are recorded, Jesus is really there. Jesus performs those acts. The word does what it says. So uh, you stand as a sign of your recognition and understanding and confession that Christ really is the word, and that by this word he is, he is engaging with me, he is acting upon me to do something by the, by the power of the Spirit. Uh, so, all of that then being said, the, the Gospels are not primarily history. They, were, they have some history, but they are primarily the salvation of Christ. They are the words and deeds of Christ. These things are written that you may know the historical deeds, dates, names, places that happened. Wrong. That's not what the evangelist writes. These things are written that you may believe. In whom? In Jesus. Correct. So it's not so much about the historicity of the accounts, although that's present, it's about the salvation narrative delivering Jesus to you. That is what the evangelists are concerned with, delivering Jesus to the people. So to that end then, if this is the way we understand the Gospels, does it matter what we know about Joseph? It just doesn't matter. Does what Joseph did have any bearing on salvation? Does what Joseph did change your salvation in Christ? Does it affect the way that Christ is given to you? Not at all. The only thing that it would do is satiate your curiosity. You want to know because you are students of history. I want to know what happened. Um, does it matter what Mary did the rest of her life? Does it matter where, where, when, or how Joseph died? None of it really matters. Does it matter what happened in between the birth of Christ and boy Jesus in the temple? It, it just doesn't. You, you get everything that you need to know about those 12 years in the birth narrative. Because everything that you need to know about Jesus is that he is the Son of God who is made flesh. And that he is a little baby. That he is weak. That he took on everything in our flesh. This is the thing that blows my mind. When you start to, when you start to consider the mystery of the incarnation and the grave um, The, the gravity of the incarnation, what it means, that the weight of it for your salvation. It's a really, it's a big deal that God becomes flesh. And, uh, th and this is something actually I was going to cover in, in, an, in another, I don't think it's in this handout, in another one that I was working on. But uh, 
Again, tongue in cheek, because we're just having fun. I'm not trying to start fights or anything. Just We're just having fun. The hymn, Away in a Manger, what do they say about Jesus? The little Lord Jesus. Okay, no crying he makes. It's a nice, it's a nice little hymn. But it's not, strictly speaking, true. The little Jesus cried. He cried his lungs out. He soiled his swaddling clothes. He got sick and vomited and had runny noses and fell down and skinned his knees and got splinters in his hands because he was fully man. And that's important. It matters that the Lord cries. It matters that he is a child, an infant, who soils his pants and gets hurt, skins his knees, gets sick, because that is what the fullness of humanity expects of someone who is fully human. So when we say that the Lord is incarnate, and then we want to know what happens to him, everything that happens to him is right there in the first two chapters of Luke. And then in the next chapter, when he's 12 years old in the temple, you already know everything that you need to know for your salvation about who the Lord is. Fully God, fully man. Fully man in the fullest sense. Now, here's the follow-up. Where do you go if you want to know about Joseph? Or if you want to know about those 12 years? <laughs> I mean, I suppose. That wasn't what I was trying to get at. Pardon me? You could Google it, but here's what I'll say about Google. Google is a dangerous place for theology. You can get any answer and every answer by doing a Google search, and you just so happen to have somebody with you who was trained in the church and who is able to look at the things of the church and know what thing is a good thing and what thing is not a good thing. So you, you could come and you could ask me, um, which honestly would probably be better than Google. <laughs> but this is, this is actually the point that I'm trying to get at. There are books in the canon of the church and then some other books in the tradition of the church that do talk about these things. And they are primarily histories, which is why they aren't scripture. Scripture is not primarily history, it's primarily salvation. But these other books are primarily history. Now, some of them are not canonical, so the church doesn't uni uh, uniformly and um, unanimously look at them and say, oh yes, these are really important. Some of them are also kind of bad, so there are, there are a lot of these histories that you shouldn't read because they're just actually heretical and confess bad things. There are some that are canonical that are great, really cool. Um, a few of these that are, I think this one is not canonical. Excuse me. <clears throat> this is not canonical. It's just a nice traditional uh, book. I think the, the name of it is the, I think it's called Joseph the Carpenter. And it's a book from the first or second century, I think. I could be wrong in that. I don't actually remember. I think it's fairly early, at least within the first three, four centuries, just detailing the 
history of who Joseph was, where he came from, what he did, things like that. So there are books that you can look at that were written in the early days of the church that sort of talk about the history. But the bottom line is the Bible doesn't need to tell you any of that because it doesn't really matter. All you, need to, you don't really need to know about Joseph so much as you need to know about the person Joseph was put in charge of. And Joseph is canonized as a saint in the church, by the way. There is actually a, a feast day for Saint Joseph, who is the guardian of our Lord. Not the father, the guardian of our Lord. And Joseph is an example. That's an important day, by the way. The feast of Saint Joseph, guardian of our Lord. It's an important day because um, Joseph is an example of fatherhood. So the, thing, the things that you do know about Joseph, you know for a few specific reasons. One of them, of course, is to show you this is what a father does, and this is what a husband does. Takes care of his wife. Uh, throws away everything to care for his wife and his family. Uh, protects, guards uh, his children, supports them, raises them. So Joseph is an example uh, of all of those things. And then as just what a faithful man does. How do you behave as a man? Oh, toxic masculinity and all of that. Oh, the world's going to tell you how to be a man. But listen, I can judge just by the world's fashion sense that you don't really want to listen to it. I've seen, I've seen what they say a man should be, and I think they're wrong. And so does the church. So does St. Joseph. Look at him and see how a man is, how a man treats folks around him. So those kinds of things are recorded uh, for that kind of importance, but not to satiate the curiosity that says, I wonder what happened to Jesus, or I wonder what happened that led him to do this, or was Joseph really a carpenter? Well, sure, yeah. Okay, um, that's that then, and we'll continue with this next week. This is, this is my favorite part of this whole study, is we're going to get into looking at the inn, and all of the events that happened in Bethlehem, because it's, it's cooler than what you think it is, actually. Also, today is Gaudete Sunday. That is the third Sunday of Advent. Gaudete means rejoice. There's a really cool medieval hymn called Gaudete, and I shared it on the church's Facebook page, so if you want to give a listen to that, feel free. It's pretty cool. And it's sung by a really great... Group, the Jeswaldo Six, they're good. Uh, if you ever want to know more about the Jeswaldo Six, you can talk to me about them. But it's a men's choir, and uh, it's really kind of a neat little recording. So enjoy your Gaudete, and enjoy some good music for Gaudete. We'll see you at the high altar.